This week on Myths and Legends, we're in the middle of the Trojan War. Well, in the middle of year nine of the Trojan War. And we'll see that even though they've been battling for nearly a decade, here is where things finally get interesting. The creature this week is one from 19th century Japan that went viral to protect people from illness. This is Myths and Legends, episode 177b, Storm of Spears. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. If you didn't listen to 177A, please do that. There was a lot, but last time we started the Trojan War. Fun. I mean, not for anyone involved in the war. That was a 10-year-long bloody slog. But rounding out the ninth year, things finally started to change. When Achilles, the demigod son of Thetis, left the battlefield, he did so in a huff after Agamemnon took one of his slaves, shaming him, and in response, he prayed that the Greeks would regret that decision, facing such heavy losses that Agamemnon would beg him to return. He asked his mother, a sea deity, to ask Zeus, who agreed, sending a lying dream to Agamemnon and convincing the Greeks to attack walled Troy. They marched to the walls of Troy, but before the battle could commence, Paris, a prince of Troy and one who took Helen from Sparta, decided to actually do the right thing for once, agreeing to single combat with Menelaus, actual husband of Helen and brother of Agamemnon, to end the war. Things quickly did not go well for Paris, who was transported away from the battle at the last moment by Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. When we last left Troy, a Trojan archer, goaded by Athena, just let an arrow fly at Menelaus, breaking the provisional truce and sticking in the Greek king's side. Odysseus and Diomedes stood, watching the fight, if it could be called that. There was weird god stuff going on. Odysseus knew at the moment Paris, you know, inexplicably disappeared into a puff of smoke on the battlefield. Now, they were just waiting to see how this played out. Odysseus shook his head. The name Paris was not going to be remembered well after this. <laughs> hey, at least his name isn't Diomedes, Diomedes said. There's nothing wrong with that name, Odysseus replied. There was nothing wrong with that name until I was 12 and a Thracian king got famous for feeding people to his crazy horses. He gets killed by Hercules and suddenly everyone's like, oh, you related to that Diomedes? You know, you could just go by Dio or Medes, Odysseus replied, but Diomedes cut him off. No way, why should I change? He's the one who sucks. Then both men gasped. Someone shot Menelaus. Menelaus screamed out as black blood flowed down his leg. He dropped to the ground, and Agamemnon skidded on his knees in the dirt. No, his little brother, why? Why did the gods heap pain after pain upon their backs? Menelaus's breathing got shallow. Brother? Oh, it was going dark, brother. I never told you how much you mean to me, Agamemnon. Tell Helen I forgive her. Go home, brother. Live your life. Live it enough for both of us. Agamemnon clutched Menelaus, tears streaming down his beard. He would do it. He would leave this land. 
he would go home and live. Agamemnon held Menelaus until his brother went limp, his head lolling back. Menelaus was dead. And then Menelaus' eyes opened a little bit. It hadn't happened yet, had it? Agamemnon shook his head. No. When was it going to happen? He thought he was dying. Uh, soon? Hold on. Agamemnon looked down. Huh. The dark blood had stopped. Wait a second. He unhooked Menelaus's woven, knotted belt. The arrow came with it. Only the last inch or so had stuck in Menelaus' side. They called a doctor out, and their medic didn't need his fancy degree to see that Menelaus, king of Sparta, was going to be fine. His fancy degree consisting of learning how to make potions from a centaur, by the way. He rubbed Menelaus' side with a salve, gave him a lollipop, and told him to be a brave boy. Nothing hurts like a scrape. Agamemnon, who had just seconds before been ready to pack up and go home, was now ready for exactly the opposite. Zeus's plan had worked. The Greeks were preparing for battle. Agamemnon strode among his generals, egging them on, calling them cowards if they ran now. All except Odysseus, who shot him one look. After Palamedes, Agamemnon was not getting on the bad side of Odysseus. You were doomed before you even knew that guy was mad at you. Battle cries erupted from the Greeks as they readied their chariots and pointed their spears toward the other army. Unseen among them, the gods also prepared for battle. Athena stood on the side of the Greeks, and mad Ares, the god of war, stood behind the Trojans. Shields, soldiers, and chariots clashed. The truce had been shattered, and the battle had begun. There were losses on both sides, and too many nipple-adjacent stabbings to count. I'm just kidding, people have counted them. I linked an article on MythPodcast.com with the, all the different places people get wounded in the Iliad. It said that, as the dirt and blood flew, ranks of the Greek fighters, ranks of the Trojans laid there, side by side, face down in the dust. Diomedes cried out. He was hit. A brazen spear had gone through his armor. The Trojan warrior Pandarus had hit the Greek hero. He was thrown from his chariot in the midst of the battle, people screaming, stabbing, and dying all around him. He ripped the spear out and rolled to avoid being trampled. Diomedes, son of Tydeus, called out to Athena, give him strength now. He wouldn't look long on the light of day. Then the world slowed down as a shadow fell on Diomedes. A hand reached out and touched his wound, and it felt hot. Then he felt nothing. The same hand grabbed his wrist and pulled him to his feet. His prayers had been heard. It was Athena, daughter of Zeus, goddess of wisdom and a lot of other things. She had healed him, and she would give him strength. The strength of his father, Tydeus, one of the seven against Thebes. She would give him strength, and she would give him sight. Out there, on the battlefield, the deathless gods fought alongside their favorite factions. She said that she realized it was kind of unfair to mortals for deathless gods to fight with the cheats on, but now Diomedes got to as well. She touched him on the shoulder. Welcome to God mode. As Diomedes felt the power surging through him, Athena gave him a warning. 
he will be able to see through the gods' disguises on the battlefield. So if an Olympian approached him to test his mettle, do not attack. Except if Aphrodite was out there. If he saw her, he could treat himself to a stabbing or two. Breathing hard, Diomedes nodded and took off. It's said that he mauled the Trojans, killing captains, spearing people, and ending whole lines, whole families by killing multiple groups of brothers with his bare hands. Aeneas, who was riding with Pandarus, gasped. Aeneas is going to become a very good friend of ours at a later date. He has an epic poem of his own called the Aeneid. He was a son of Aphrodite and a Trojan. Super briefly, Zeus cursed Aphrodite to fall in love with a human man, as if he didn't fall in love with humans all day, every day. And together, they conceived Aeneas. Aphrodite had one stipulation. Keep it on the down low. He couldn't brag about being the boyfriend of the most beautiful of the Olympians. But, of course, he bragged. Nearly as soon as Aphrodite's name was out of his mouth, a thunderbolt came down from Olympus and struck the man in the foot. He would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And he was actually back in Troy at this moment. Aeneas originally didn't want anything to do with the Trojan War because, yeah, decade-long war you have nothing to do with was pretty unappealing. Even if you are tangentially related to the royal family. Well, Achilles forced his hand when the son of Thetis sacked his city, forcing him to go into Troy and into the war. Aeneas turned to Pandarius, who was driving. Hey, didn't you just hit that guy with a spear? Why is he going all crazy? Pandarius? But Pandarius was no longer available. Diomedes, by way of his spear, had paid Pandarius back for the small wound Pandarius had put in Diomedes' chest by putting in another much larger hole in Pandarius' head. It said that Athena guided it so that it split the archer's nose between his eyes. The chariot banked and flipped. Aeneas rolled and rose to his feet but he was facing the god-fortified Diomedes, ranging and raging like a mad dog, barehanded because his spear was sticking out of Pandarius' head. Diomedes picked up the first thing he found, a boulder, and tossed it at Aeneas. His scream echoed through Olympus itself as the boulder connected with Aeneas' hip and pelvis, smashing the socket, ripping the tendons, and tearing back the skin in shreds. Aphrodite shrieked and flew to her son, who was now lying unconscious in the dirt. The world slowed down for both of them, but there was another. As Aphrodite prepared to whisk her son away from the battlefield, she heard a crunching in the dirt behind her. As the others raged in nearly imperceptible slow motion, Diomedes, son of Tydeus, gripped his spear and charged the goddess. He told her to stick to the lusts she knew. Carnage and battle weren't for her. Oh, was it not enough to lure women to their ruin? Did you want to join the fighting too? Cool, join the fighting. Diomedes managed to stab her through the wrist before she fled, blotting the dirt with her dark and deathless blood. In a flash, Aphrodite was gone, and Diomedes stood triumphant over the unconscious body of Aeneas, about to snuff out his life before he got a franchise spin-off of his own. But in that instant, one of the Trojans ran to his aid. At least that's how he looked to everyone else. Diomedes saw the man for who he was. Apollo, son of Zeus, the god of archery, music, healing, diseases, and more, stood before Diomedes. Apollo beat the man's shield back three times, 
barely managing to push Diomedes far enough back for him to whisk Aeneas away to safety and heal him. When the archer was gone, Diomedes, still amped up from Athena's boost, turned to the closest Trojan he could find and charged. Ajax put his heel on a man's head and pulled the spear loose. What in the world was that? There had been a scream from the other side of the battlefield. Each of the Greek legends had been pressing onward against the Trojans, but men just kept spilling out of the city. Then, the cry. There were many screams on a battlefield, but none like this. This came from the stormer of ramparts, the reeker of blood, the destroyer of men. This came from Ares, the god of war, when Diomedes stabbed him in the stomach. Despite being absolutely mad, Ares was also very distractible and had been off doing nothing in particular while the war raged. It was only when Apollo, after rescuing Aeneas, found the absent-minded butcher that Ares was coaxed back into the battle with a, hey, why are you not at the battle? The one right there. Those are your guys. Get your head in the game, literal bro. And Ares did. Cloaking the battlefield in a fog of war, he raged on behalf of the Trojans, pushing the Achaeans, the Greeks, back. Facing Ares' chaos and carnage, they didn't even have the presence of mind to run. Neither fighting nor fleeing, the Greeks clamored in confusion. And among them, cooling himself, sat Diomedes, Athena popped down, asking what he was doing. His men were going to die. He nodded and pointed to his eyes. He could see. It was Ares, so was she going to let him off the leash? Let him attack the gods? He got close with Apollo. Athena's eyes widened. Ares? Oh, go for it, please. We all hate that guy. We keep him around because he's really good at messing up anyone we want, like doing the very, very dirty work. But he's also not super dependable, like he was supposed to be on our side today. So, what do you say? Wanna jam a spear in his gut? And that's exactly what happened. Super Saiyan Diomedes, with his spear guided by the goddess of wisdom and warfare, buried itself deep in the gut of the god of war, slicing his organs and causing his black blood to soak the dirt. With his scream, a shudder shook both Greek and Trojan, the Achaeans and the Dardanians, that terror was nothing compared to what would come next. Diomedes, having fought three of the Olympians in one day, couldn't be stopped. He raged and continued on. That day, he would surpass Odysseus, Menelaus, even Ajax as the greatest warrior in the battle. He pushed the Trojans back to the Dardan gates. Agamemnon rushed in behind him, urging the Greeks not to fling themselves at spoils, not to lag behind and kill the wounded. There would be plenty of time for that while Troy, Ilium, burned. As the warriors approached the gates, Hector, the prince of Troy, and Priam's eldest, knew that this was the end. And if this was the end, he was going to say goodbye. He found Andromache, his wife, at the wall. Andromache. Her fathers and brothers had all been killed. And now, the enemy was at the gates. Troy would soon fall. Hector would win or die, so 
he likely wouldn't survive the day. If she avoided the first marauders and told them who she was, she might be allowed to raise her son in peace as a slave. They would all look on her with pity. The former wife of Hector, the greatest that Troy could muster, while men still defended Troy. Great, but not good enough. But he was here now. He said that Diomedes raged with the power and consent of the gods. The man would lead the Greeks through the gates soon, with or without Achilles. Turned out Achilles wasn't necessary. Since one prophecy could be ignored, he hoped that the other, that sacred Troy would die, would prove to be nothing more than the words of a passing nightmare. But it looked like that death was at hand. He embraced her. This was it. But she shouldn't weep for him. This was fate. If he died, he died according to his fate. And no one had ever escaped fate. Neither brave nor coward. So he would be brave. For Troy, and for her. He kissed Andromache, and his infant son, who was absolutely losing it because daddy was covered in blood and bits of Greek warrior, and Hector donned his helmet. He made for the gate. He had one final idea. Oh, and doing a bit of character rehab for Paris, the man actually beat Hector out of the city, ready to die for this war that he 100% avoidably started. Ready to die now, when everyone else would die, after the truce was invalidated, not like five hours ago when he could have saved everyone inside the city. Even at Paris's best, he's kind of the worst. We'll see if Hector's first stand will also be his last stand, but that will be right after this. Hector stood before the Greek warriors. The sight of the man in his brazen armor gave even Diomedes pause. To fight a retreating army is one thing. To fight, arguably, the greatest warrior of a generation as he inspired and heartened his troops, ones that had been backed into a corner, well, that was quite another. The two armies stood less than a spear throw apart, but no one moved. Hector held up his hands and his chariot advanced. As the golden light of a dying day soaked the battlefield, Hector said that they could fight it out here. More former enemies could lie face down in the dust together. They could give the ferryman of the river sticks work for weeks. Or it could end with him. One final duel. Hector said he wasn't his brother. They could all agree that Paris was the worst. Pretty much everyone's head nodded on both sides. Hector said he would fight in single combat against whoever the Greeks wanted. Same deal as Paris, the surrender of Helen and her riches or the surrender of Greeks, with one important addition. Whoever killed the other would treat the body with respect. If Hector died, his body would immediately be returned to the Trojans with honor to be prepared for burial. If a Greek warrior died, the Trojans would do the same. Agamemnon and Menelaus exchanged a glance that was just common decency. And it didn't even really need to be said. Sure. Hector smiled, thanks, just foreshadowing. Anyway, who's gonna do it? Who will fight me? Menelaus stepped up, sword in hand. Brother, I will kill Hector and win back Helen and... Oh, you gonna sneeze? Not Paris. Mm. I can't, I'm not sneeze. Not Paris, you're gonna die. 
Wow. All this dust was just killer for his allergies. Brother, are are you sane? Oh, I'm not saying anything. I just have very bad allergies. Oh, here comes another one. Hector's really good at fighting. You'll definitely die. Ooh, wow. Oh, I wish I could do it. Nestor chimed in. Oh, if I was young, like the time we fought on Celadon's rapids. Oh, King Erythius raged with his club and his men-at-arms. Oh, how Lycurgus' spear flashed. After a very unasked-for story, Nestor actually stuck the landing. Yep, all those heroes of old and here, among the greatest of our age, and no one with a spine to stand up to Hector. Nestor finished with a smirk. Nine men volunteered immediately, including Diomedes, Great and Little Ajax, Idomeneus, and even Odysseus. For all the really solid prospects they had, Agamemnon and Menelaus prayed to Zeus that the winner would be Telamonian Ajax. Now, Ajax the Greater, or Ajax the son of Telamon, was maybe the biggest Greek warrior. Opinions vary on who exactly is the best, but some consider it maybe a four-way tie between Ajax the Greater, Diomedes, Achilles, and maybe another person who's kind of a spoiler that I don't want to give away right now. Ajax was the son of Telamon, who we talked about a while ago. Telamon was a man who rivaled Hercules for strength, and he was Hercules' partner in actual crime when he and the demigod broke into Troy the first time a generation ago and took King Priam's sister. Telamon was actually first in the door, too, so Ajax had a lot to live up to. Ajax's mom had a pretty interesting and tragic life, but to avoid this becoming a 20-part series, I'm going to include her story in the Troy Stories member episode coming up this month. Anyway, of the Greeks, Ajax was the one who actually appeared to be a match for Hector, and lo and behold, he won when they drew lots. The man strode out, spear in hand, and the battle commenced. After the spears clanged to the ground, neither hitting its mark, they pulled out their lances, and first blood was drawn. The Greeks and Trojans gasped alike when Ajax the Greater slashed Hector in the neck after jamming the lance straight through the Trojan prince's shield. Hector didn't even have a chance to pull the lance from the shield, because in seconds, Ajax had picked up a boulder and smashed the shield. Both lances clattered uselessly to the ground. Finally, it was time for swords. Hector felt his blood stream down his neck. He knew this could be the end. But if this was his death, it was a good death. It was for his wife, his child, and his city. Just then, two men ran out on the battlefield, jamming two staffs between the fighters. Hold up, it was nighttime. Wait, why are they shaking hands? A Greek warrior asked his friend from the sidelines. Was it over? Wars could be called on account of darkness? What, would the fight to the death be too dangerous if they continued? Do torches not exist? We're not going home tomorrow, are we? The other warrior asked. Welp. Both men agreed to halt on account of it being night, and now Ajax is giving Hector a nice cloth, and Hector's giving Ajax a sword, so you tell me. The original warrior kicked the dirt. This sucked. Ugh, once again, so close yet so far. Zeus could absolutely control the night, but he didn't even have to. He just had to inspire two heralds, one from the Greeks and one from the Trojans, to run out and simply float the idea of canceling the duel on account of darkness. Both men agreed, and even though there was no more death that day, the war would continue on. I mean, this is still like the first act, and the Olympians had a lot riding on this war. 
They couldn't just let it end amicably and respectfully. And it definitely did not. The two sides agreed on a day to bury their copious amounts of dead. And the one thing the Iliad does very well, in my opinion, is give an idea about the cost of war. First, it's not shy about the graphic details when it comes to deaths in battle, but it shows the warriors mourning their friends and family members as they perform the rites and place their bodies in a mass grave. Unfortunately, Zeus, like the gaping maw of death, would not be satisfied. With Achilles sidelined, and both sides able to sense victory just outside of their grasp, the war resumed the following day. The dead were buried, and the Greeks built ramparts around their ships, which, why would they not do that before? They had 10 years. Anyway, it was good that they did, because Zeus, on Mount Ida, actively watching over the planes of battle to ensure that no one interfered, was ready to make good on his promise to Thetis, the mother of Achilles. It was a slaughter. As Nestor and the others fought out front, pushing the Trojans back to the walls, Zeus entered the battle. Lightning rained down all around them, splitting the ground, terrifying the horses, and leaving the smoldering Greek corpses along the battlefield. As the Trojans saw the very helpful sign that Zeus was on their side, they advanced. And it was only because Diomedes was driving by in his chariot that Nestor survived the day. Because Zeus is, and continues to be, just terrible, he inspired the Greeks to fight, with an eagle carrying a fawn in its talons. And, for a little while, things were okay. They stopped the Trojans short of the fortifications, when Ajax's half-brother went all Legolas and killed countless Trojans with arrows before Hector wounded him, forcing him and the Greeks back behind the walls they had constructed the previous day. Now, the Greeks now had the sea at their backs as they camped among their ships. If anything happened to those ships, it would be a brutal fight to the end, and the Greeks would never be able to go home. If their camps and ships were destroyed, their chances of taking the city would go the same way. They would die alone, fighting one by one, forever separated from home. Since he had the Greeks pushed back to the sea, Hector decided to make him feel it a bit. Night fell, so he wouldn't risk trying to breach the ramparts, but they wouldn't be going back to the city. They wouldn't give the Greeks an inch. Hector ordered hundreds of campfires to be ignited on the plains of battle all around the Greek encampment. He wanted them to know that, at first light, he would be over those ramparts. He would burn their ships and finally put an end to this decade-long war. Cut and run! Get out! Go! All hope is lost! Agamemnon screamed. <laughs> His men laughed. Nope! Not gonna fall for it this time. Some guys were still looking for their teeth after Odysseus went to town on them. They were staying right here. Nice try, Gordon Ramsay. Wait, was he serious? Odysseus looked to Nestor, Diomedes, Ajax, and the rest of the brain trust. Get him inside. Now. They hustled Agamemnon into the tent. Odysseus, Nestor, Ajax, Menelaus, Diomedes, they all tried to calm the king down but Agamemnon could only think of the thousand fires he had seen dotting the plain, of the men waiting until morning to storm the ramparts and kill every last Greek soldier. They tried to help him. Diomedes asked them to remember. Troy was fated to fall. It would happen. Then, Nestor snapped a finger. 
He knew it. He knew how to beat the Trojans, but... Agamemnon snapped to attention. But... But what? Nestor shook his head. Agamemnon wasn't going to like it, but... It might be nice. It might be nice to have the son of Peleus on our side. Why did you say that twice? Odysseus asked. Esther shook his head. It just had a good ring to it. No other reason. Agamemnon nodded. Yeah, yeah. He was crazy when he decided to attack, put under a spell by a lying dream from Zeus. He had been crazy, too, the night he sent Achilles away. Nestor was about to say that that had been two weeks earlier, and they spent the better part of 20 minutes convincing him that it was a horrible idea. But they just decided to take the win, shut up, and listen to all the stuff Agamemnon was going to give Achilles if the son of Thetis came back and helped them push the Trojans away from the boats. When that list was finalized, including seven women, treasure, and marriage to one of Agamemnon's daughters that the High King hadn't killed, Odysseus and Ajax left to present the offer to Achilles. But they hadn't seen him in over two weeks, and they had no idea what kind of rage-filled monster waited for them. Welcome to my humble abode! Achilles boomed, grinned, and gestured Odysseus and Ajax inside. But not before a hug. He showed them the resplendent table. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, you die. I'm going home. Patroclus took their cloaks. Going home? Odysseus echoed. Wait, 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 wait. At least hear him out. Agamemnon had come around. He was begging Achilles to stay now. He would return Briseis, of course, and he would give Achilles so many riches, seven Thracian women. His pick of daughters of Agamemnon to marry, Achilles had held out for as long as he needed to, and now he was reaping the rewards. Achilles held up his hands. Look, bud, this had nothing to do with Agamemnon, even though he hated that king like the very gates of death. And he had robbed Achilles of the only woman he had ever truly loved. But really, no. This isn't an anger thing. This is an epiphany thing. We fight a lot. But what if there was more to life than fighting? There was a guffaw from behind Odysseus. And Phoenix, the charioteer, stepped out. We haven't heard his story because I decided to go a different route with Achilles' backstory. But in this version, Peleus lived to an old age. And Achilles didn't go to Syros. He was trained by his father's charioteer, Phoenix no relation to the bird, and the man had joined the war alongside his pupil. He has a whole backstory where his father had a mistress and his mom convinced Phoenix, her son, to sleep with the father's mistress and get her love of old men out of her system and it just ended up in a tangled web of attempted murder. Anyway, Phoenix was Odysseus's ace in the hole, someone to shame Achilles into returning. Should it come to that? And it came to that. Phoenix said his piece and Achilles sat there, then he rose and whispered something to Patroclus. Achilles nodded. If he stayed, he would get riches and glory. But no wealth was worth his life. A man's breath can't come back again once it slips through clenched teeth. He said the same awaited the cowardly and the brave. They both went down to death. Achilles could work himself to death, winning glory and riches for what? that he could hack his way through people and take their wives as prizes, 
passing on to Agamemnon the best bits. And what was it all for? To die young and let everything he worked so hard for come to nothing. He knew the prophecies. Live a long, happy life and be forgotten, or go to Troy, die in the war, and be a legend. Well, Achilles was making a choice. He chose life. He chose Patroclus and his kingdom and his son. He had a son. The boy was almost 10 now, old enough to learn how to fight. Achilles shook his head. No, maybe he wouldn't need that. Maybe Achilles would teach him to farm, fish, craft, anything but this. That was why Achilles was leaving. Tomorrow, he would pack up, and he and his Myrmidons would sail for home. Anyone who wanted to could stay, but he was leaving. There was more to life than war. He had been seeking after a good death for so long that he forgot what it was like to live. Now, for Phoenix, his old friend, he was piling linens. Phoenix would stay and catch up tonight, and if Phoenix didn't want to be mowed down by Trojans who surrounded them with a thousand campfires in the night, he was welcome aboard Achilles' black-hulled boat. But what will the men think? Ajax said, stepping forward. He said that Achilles might not care about his own glory, but what about life? What about the thousands that would go to Hades tomorrow if Achilles didn't join the battle? Achilles nodded. Good point. He should go talk to them. Odysseus shook his head at Ajax, but it was too late. Nothing could stand against Achilles once he had a thought in his mind. Hey everyone, Achilles here. Greatest warrior who ever lived. Uh, we still have some signed headshots before they get packed up, so talk to Patroclus if you want those. Uh, just gotta say, you don't need to be here. Why are we here? Fighting for some cuckold? Fighting to get some guy's wife back who doesn't even want to be with him? What about your own wives? Are you expected to not love them as much as Menelaus loves Helen? Well, let's be real. It's not about Helen. It's about how much Menelaus loves himself. Like, she left. Bummer. Get over it. We're all following a guy who can't take a hint. Some creeper who can't take no for an answer. I'm going to be on the first ship out of here tomorrow. And if any of you are smart, you'll be going with me. Achilles turned to Ajax as he passed him on the way back to his tent. That work for you? Odysseus didn't go back in. They had to get word to Agamemnon. The Trojans would attack at dawn, and no help was coming. Achilles was leaving them to their fate. They were on their own. When your day starts with Zeus raining blood down on you, it's not going to be a good day. It was kind of a mixed bag at first. Agamemnon had his day of glory, as Book 11 is called, and pushed the Trojans back to the walls of Troy. But then Agamemnon got injured, and Hector pushed the Greeks back to the spiky ramparts. Then, a spear glanced off Hector's helmet, rattling the prince, turning the tide of battle back to the Greeks, until Diomedes got his foot shot to the ground by Paris, turning the tide a fourth time. He was safe, but the same couldn't be said for Odysseus who was slowly getting encircled by the advancing Trojan warriors. As the spear points closed in, he wondered if Penelope and Telemachus would ever know what became of him. There was no quitting the fighting now. The man who wants to make his mark in war must stand his ground and brace for all he's worth, he said to himself, in flawless iambic hexameter. He must suffer his wounds, or wound a man to death. The spears closed in on Odysseus, 
and began by flaying the skin from his ribs. On the edge of battle, the Trojans were advancing on the ramparts, and it was now a question of when they would crash over the walls and massacre the Greeks among their ships. Retreating back through the gate, Ajax rode with a bleeding, unconscious Odysseus, everyone dodging Paris's arrows, while Hector thundered like a god toward the gate. As the doors closed, a healer by the name of Machaon took an arrow to the shoulder and went down. Hector pounded on the other side, but for now, the ramparts held. So, I noticed we didn't leave, Patroclus said to Achilles, as the demigod sat there, plucking his lyre. Patroclus said that they had been together a long time. They had both been in the kingdom of Peleus. They had both lived with and trained under Chiron. Now, ten years of war. He knew Achilles better than anyone. What was he waiting for? Achilles threw down his lyre. He wanted the Greeks to come here. He wanted them on their knees, begging him to return. Hector would be at the ship soon. Soon, they would have no choice. Beg or die. Agamemnon could bow before him. The great king could realize just how little he mattered, how much greater Achilles was than him. Patroclus nodded, so all that epiphany talk. That's all it was. Talk. The rage was still there. Achilles turned. Someone's wounded, Achilles said, rising. Patroclus nodded. A lot of people were wounded. Achilles shook his head and steadied his shaking hand. Go see. He, he needed a minute. Patroclus nodded and started off in a run toward the tent of Nestor. Seconds after Patroclus disappeared into the tent, a shouting came up from the ramparts. The Trojans were over the wall. The battle for the ships had begun. While the men were fighting it out below, in a haze and death and fog among the ships, Zeus was reconnecting with Hera. He didn't know what it was. But when she stopped by Mount Ida, on Crete, where he watched the battle, she was looking great. It could have been a new hairstyle, new dress, the breastband of longing that belonged to Aphrodite that would make the wearer irresistible. Definitely one of those things. But when Hera stopped by the mountain... He suddenly wasn't interested in the little game he was playing with thousands of human lives. They embraced, and for the second time I remember reading in Greek myth, they were together. Zeus had a great time. It said that it was like the first time they rolled together, quote, unknown to their parents, which, which, ugh. And after, he was quite sleepy. It could have been the long day in the afternoon's activities could have been the god of sleep in the form of a bird that Hera had bribed to be here. Who's to say? But Zeus zonked out. When he did, Hera got word to Poseidon. Go. Zeus was out of commission. Get out there. And Poseidon did. He gave the Greeks new energy. And they surged ahead. A whole flank of the Trojan army died, pinned against the inside of the ramparts. And Ajax got that rematch with Hector when, again, he picked up a boulder and chucked it at the Trojan prince. Hector didn't get back up from that one. Not immediately. And he was dragged by the Trojans out of the camp. 
the Trojans were now in full retreat. Poseidon was successful. For about 10 minutes. Zeus woke up feeling so well rested, and what was going on? He just looked away, and now his guys were in retreat? Seriously? Hera smirked, and Zeus called his instant messenger, Iris, to himself. After Poseidon was booted from the battlefield, Apollo rode alongside Hector. Hector felt his wounds begin to heal, as the god whispered into his ear to turn around. Look, back at the Greek encampment, the trenches in front of their ramparts had been covered by Apollo. Apollo told him that this was the day. He could take the Greek camp now. He could burn their ships. Hector didn't wait. He turned his men around and attacked. If Hector seemingly rising from the dead to direct his Trojans to tear down the Greek fortifications and once again fight in hand-to-hand combat in front of the ships wasn't enough, the sight of Apollo, one of the Olympians themselves, on the battlefield and fighting on behalf of the Trojans was enough to terrify the Greeks. The battle cry of Apollo went up and the Greeks lost their nerve. They broke and ran, ran back to the ships on the shore, to their camp. Anything to get away from the seemingly deathless Hector. In the haze of it all, Hector stood, victorious, next to the first Greek ship. He gestured to one of his men, and they brought a torch. It was time. Victory was his. He put the torch to the base of the ship. Ten years on the beach had dried it out enough, and the black wood caught instantly. The fire snaked its way up the structure until the ship was completely ablaze. A beacon to Hector's victory. Hector waved his men onward. For more torches. Today was the day the Greeks paid for everything they had taken from the Trojans over the last ten years. But the Trojans wouldn't move. Hector looked behind him. And they not only weren't advancing, they were taking steps back. What were they doing? They had the Greeks. But Hector saw it. He followed the eyes of the Trojans to a glittering form made all the more brilliant by the burning ship. It wasn't a god standing on the battlefield. It was worse. The armor of Achilles glinted in the light of the fire and charged. And next week, we will likely finish the Trojan War. We'll see what got the Myrmidons back into battle, and we'll see if, truly, sacred Troy must die. If you're looking to support the show, one of the best things you can do is tell a friend, or tweet about it, or share it in any way. If you'd like to support it monetarily, then there's a membership thing, where we have extra episodes, ad-free shows, and more, at support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is Amabie, from Japanese folklore. In May 1846, in the twilight of the Edo period, two officials looked down at the sea. Whatever it was, it was back. For the past few nights, a glowing object could be seen in the waters off the shore. As the official who drew the short straw approached, he could see that it wasn't an object. It was a creature, and it spoke Japanese. The official probably had a hard time getting past the way this thing looked. It was both fish-like and bird-like because it had a mouth like a bird's bill, was covered in scales from the neck down, and it had three legs. 
and it had a fantastic head of hair down to its feet. It said its name was the Amabie. It lived in the ocean, and it had news. There were going to be some good harvests for the following six years, and if an outbreak of disease should follow, to show the people an image of the Amabie, and it would protect them against harm. After that, the creature returned to the sea, never to be seen again. But actually, she was seen again. A lot. The people took her message seriously, though, and immediately recorded the story and carved her image into a woodblock, printing it in the newspaper so that as many people could see her as possible. There's some speculation that this is simply a mistranslation or slight variation on another creature called the Amabiko, another ocean-dwelling creature with three legs and less great hair. It's not a mermaid either, but an ape-like creature. The story's pretty similar. It doesn't glow, but it emerges from the sea, tells how things are going to be really good, really bad, and then encourages you to share its image to help people. In the 19th century, cholera was ravaging Japan. In fact, in 1846, the appearance of the Amabie was situated right between two big outbreaks. Images of these creatures were hung in houses to ward off disease. And if you've been paying attention on Twitter, you'll actually notice that the Amabie was trending recently. Because of her ability to ward off disease, people all over the world were drawing pictures of the creature and sharing it. And it was so cool to see folklore emerging into our daily lives. The pictures are awesome too, ranging from these like minimalist to adorable to even like Skeksis looking monsters. They're, it's pretty cool. There are images of the Amabie all over the internet right now. I link to the Twitter keyword in the post on mythpodcast.com and post an image of the original woodblock. Check it out and have your day brightened by a three-legged mermaid with great hair. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Are you stuck at home, feeling isolated and worried? BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help through phone or video sessions. Plus, exchange unlimited messages. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love in less than 24 hours. Get professional help when you want it, wherever you are. BetterHelp is a truly affordable option, and our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. Go to betterhelp.com legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.